0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show... The largest anti-war demonstrations in American history were the protests in the fall of 1969, with more than 2 million people in the streets demanding end the war in Vietnam. But did those demonstrations have any effect on President Nixon? Did they help end the war? Historian Chris Appy will comment, and will talk about the new documentary called The Movement and the Madman, playing on PBS American Experience on March 28th. But first, American women in 2023. The news is bad, but it's not all bad. Katha Pollitt will explain in a minute. There's bad news about women in America today, but there's also some good news as we celebrate Women's History Month. For both, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She's also written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times, Her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back.
2: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Well, let's start with the good news. What's on your list?
2: More girls than ever are going to college and grad school, where they receive the majority of degrees at every level. That's pretty amazing. Girls and women's sports are pretty big. Teen pregnancy and motherhood are the lowest they've been in decades, which is kind of amazing. And then even evangelical women are calling out abusive pastors. I mean, there are ways in which there is this kind of ground-level, grassroots feminism that can coexist with things like being an evangelical Christian.
1: And on the abortion rights front, there is actually a little bit of good news, of course, the Supreme Court did not abolish the right to abortion in the United States. It removed federal protection, which left everything up to the states, and in particular, the state supreme courts. So far, three state supreme courts have ruled on whether their state constitutions protect abortion. Two of those three have said yes. And remarkably, both are deep red states, South Carolina, and just this week, North Dakota, the state Supreme Court said those state constitutions protect abortion. One state said no, Idaho. And now that the Democrats have regained control of state government in Michigan, abortion will be protected there. And in Wisconsin, uh, it looks like the liberals will win control of that state Supreme Court, with Janet Protasewicz as the candidate who, if she wins, will protect abortion rights there. And also on the abortion rights front, there's this new news about Walgreens, which had announced it would not fill prescriptions for the abortion drug methampriston anywhere. Now, this was after the attorney generals in 21 states threatened legal action. Now Walgreens will fill prescriptions for the abortion drug in every state where it's not specifically banned. Walgreens changed its mind after a lot of political action, including calls for a consumer boycott in the state of California, announcing it would not renew its $54 million contract with Walgreens. That's why Walgreens changed their mind. What's the latest here?
2: The latest thing that happened is that the distributor of metapristone has not applied to fulfill it under these new rules. So I think we just don't know. I wouldn't count on Walgreens to, to protect women's access to this drug.
1: Walgreens has said it will fill prescriptions in those 21 states. Now, it may be that their supplier won't make it available to them.
2: Right. So we'll just have to see.
1: And of course, in electoral politics, we have our first ever woman vice president. A record number of women were elected to the House of Representatives in 2022. Right now, 41% of Democrats in the House are women. 16% of Republicans in the House are women. We elected two great women as governors last year, Katie Hobbs in Arizona and Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. And we got the first female governors ever to be elected in New York, Arkansas, and Massachusetts. And I live in Los Angeles where we have the first woman mayor in history karen bass former community organizer and there's one other thing on the good news part of this broadcast we have special hershey bars for women's history month as they say celebrating the central role that women and girls play in our lives this special hershey bar has a new look to highlight the central role that she plays in our name and our lives her she get it and then they go on it wasn't just this is i'm quoting from their uh press release it wasn't just about selling more candy we wanted to drive real social change but how exactly does a chocolate brand do that and why would consumers listen to hershey's we wanted to support an organization that inspires us and we fell in love with girls on the run which works with girls in third through eighth grade to build confidence and life skills through physical activity. Girls on the Run has involved more than 2 million girls since 1996 through a network of 175 local councils in all 50 states. It's a $9 million organization. The lead corporate sponsor is Adidas. Hershey is in the second tier, donating $150,000. And then they add, did you know that Hershey's is number one on Forbes' list of the world's top female-friendly companies? What do you think about this good news?
2: I did not know that, John. I think that uh, tying women's liberation to a candy bar is kind of silly. Um, and this is what my column was started off being about, which is that every year Women's History Month, to me, seems less political and more corporate celebratory. Yay, women. And it's like a month where women, both famous and somewhat less famous, are celebrated. And then we go back to where we were before. (laughs) Around the time of the Dobbs decision, Michelle Goldberg and Susan Faludi each wrote a piece for the New York Times warning that women were being pushed backwards. And I wanted to write a piece That was said, no, no, things are forging ahead with the, you know, the list of things that we just discussed. And I wrote a proposal faster than I've ever written a proposal saying, oh, no, don't give up, things are going to be good. And they never answered me, (laughs) um, which was good, because the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, Susan and Michelle are right. Um, And the reason they're right is because no matter what good things are happening in this or that area, the denial of abortion protection under the Constitution ruins them all because you can't have all those good things if you don't have the basic freedom to plan your childbearing. It's not just one item on a list. It's fundamental to making progress on everything else. And from history, we know that. Unwanted pregnancy that cannot be interrupted. Uh, How can that not affect education, sports, political participation, mental health, ability to work, ability to escape domestic violence, or poverty, to say nothing of surviving pregnancy and childbirth.
1: Um, So so for starters, we have 14 states, this is all from the Guttmacher Institute, 14 states that have total bans on abortion right now. Four more states have uh, like 15-week bans or seven-week bans, something like that. And those states include 36% of women in America of childbearing age, according to the Washington Post. And of course, as you say, this could get worse. Uh, Some states are strengthening abortion protections. That was our good news. And some states are doing everything they can to make all of it impossible. And the latest in that last category is the federal court in Amarillo, Texas, which has been asked to have a a federal injunction banning mefepristone, the current FDA rules allow the abortion drug to be used during the first 10 weeks of pregnancy It used to be seven weeks. It can be mailed or dispensed by retail pharmacies, which wasn't always the case. It's been used by about five million people since it was approved in 2000. Major medical groups say it has a very strong safety records. What do we know about the federal court in Amarillo, Texas?
2: Well, this judge is a Trump nominee. Uh, Trump is really the gift that keeps on giving as far as the courts go. And he has a record of being anti-abortion, being very conservative. He's a, you know, he's a big Catholic and people are very afraid about how he'll rule. Now, if he should rule saying, oh, I'm sorry, i That was a big mistake. Um, letting that be legally prescribed that's not the end of the story there'll be there'll be appeals there are ways of for at least for a while getting around this but it's very concerning because abortion pills are now the i think it's it's a little over 50% of yes. abortions in this country are are performed that way and what with the closing of clinics it's more necessary than ever. And what women have been doing is uh, ordering it by mail or getting it on some kind of black market or getting it from their doctors. And this would completely disrupt that whole chain of acquiring.
1: And the legal challenge is, as usual, extremely dubious. They're challenging the FDA's approval of this drug 20 years ago state attorneys general, they don't really have standing as standing is usually defined. And so a lot of this is just going to be the legal technicalities of what FDA drug approval requires 20 years ago and today and who has standing to challenge it and what power a judge has to uh, overrule an FDA decision. So this is complicated matter in the legal weeds that will eventually end up at the Supreme Court if this judge does issue this injunction.
2: It is kind of amazing that one man can deny a quarter of a women, the women in this country, which is approximately how many women will have an abortion during their reproductive life. And he can just screw it up for them completely. One person. It's like we have this kind of king of reproduction.
1: <laughs> also on the bad news list, some related issues. What's the state of maternal mortality in the United States right now?
2: Well, that's been going up. It's already quite high compared to other developed, prosperous Western countries.
1: Yeah, I think compared to every other developed Western country.
2: Yes, it's it's been going up. And uh, here's an interesting wrinkle. It's possible... That in the states, in the red states where abortion is, it's not just that abortion is legal, that doctors are run great risk in taking care of patients who are very sick or who really need an abortion for, you know, to save their lives. And if medical students and young doctors don't go to those states, it will be even harder for women in those states to find to find care because doctors are terrified
1: also on the bad news list, domestic abuse. You had some statistics about murders of women by their intimate male partners. What are those statistics?
2: Approximately three women are murdered every day by intimate male partners. And to make just to put the cherry on top, a judge in Texas said, You can't take away the guns of someone. <laughs> who has been convicted of violence against, you know, of intimate partner violence, because, well, because it's his gun. <laughs> the guns are very important.
1: Oh, uh, man. <laughs> so. If you're not murdered by your partner, if you don't die in childbirth, then you have the issue of childcare. How are we doing on childcare in America?
2: Oh, childcare is a terrible, terrible situation. There are President Biden said 1.2 million women, but I think it might be more than that. I've seen much higher statistics. But women who want to work and they can't because they can't find childcare. care. Um, there are large swaths of this country that are what they call childcare deserts, which means there simply aren't enough providers at any price. Um, but then there's the question of the price of childcare, which is very high. Um, I mean, my daughter is paying something like something like twenty thousand dollars a year for her preschooler, my granddaughter, and how many families have that. It's amazing to me that women aren't as organized to just really rant and rave and march in the streets and sit in and do the political work to connect with legislators and force them to change these situations. I mean, the people that are doing it are great. I think we've never had better activists than we have now. And I, I you know I want to tip my hat as I often do to abortion funds which you know really knock themselves out to raise money to get abortions for poor women and to get women to their abortion if they live in an anti an anti-abortion state. But we need more. We need a lot more.
1: Let me just say in the last election we had a huge unprecedented mobilization of women voters supporting candidates who promise to protect abortion rights. And that's part of the reasons that the Democrats did better in the last midterm elections than any party has done in midterm elections in the last quarter quarter of a century. And it seems like it's going to keep going. If we look at what's happening in Wisconsin right now with the election of the state Supreme Court justice who could swing the court from conservative to liberal. The lead candidate is a public defender of abortion rights. Pretty unusual for a candidate for a judge's position.
2: Well, from your lips to God's ears. I hope. (laughs) I hope that's what happens. Uh, Because, as you also know, in the last elections, the, the Republicans they didn't do badly. They didn't do badly, and one reason they didn't do badly was because of my state, New York, where the Democrats completely dropped the ball. So I just I look back, you know, and I think about. Even in 2004, there was one of the largest demonstrations ever for abortion rights in Washington, D.C., the March for Women's Lives. Then we had the Women's March in 2017, beginning of 2017. That was also huge. But where are those people now? I hope they're organizing in their home states. But the Women's March itself, as well as the National Organization for Women, seem to me to be shadows of their former selves. And Planned Parenthood and NARAL seem to have been blindsided by Dobbs. Although, you know, for years, they warned us it was coming. And then when it came, where were they?
1: Katha Pollitt, you can read her new column for Women's History Month. Let's make history at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha.
2: Thank you for having me, John.
1: The largest anti-war demonstrations in American history were the protests in the fall of 1969, when more than two million people took to the streets demanding end the war in Vietnam. But did those demonstrations have any effect on President Nixon? He didn't sign a peace treaty until January 1973, more than three years later, and the last American troops didn't leave Vietnam until March 1973. But now there's a terrific new documentary on PBS American Experience. It's called The Movement and the Madman. And it presents evidence that the demonstrations did indeed change history and help in the war. It's playing on PBS stations, March 28th, And then we'll be streaming at PBS.org and on the PBS
2: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at HereYouAreAZ.com.
1: For comment, we turn to Christian Appy. He's a historian of the Vietnam War era who teaches at UMass Amherst. His books include Working Class War, American Combat Soldiers in Vietnam, and most recently, American Reckoning, the Vietnam War and Our National Identity. He's director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at UMass Amherst. And he's at work on a biography of Daniel Ellsberg. And he's one of the historians whose voices we hear in the PBS documentary, The Movement and the Madman. We reached him at home today in Amherst, Mass. Chris Appy, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Well, this is all about fall 1969. Remind us about the state of the war in Vietnam at that point. Americans had been fighting there for more than four years.
0: Well, it was still as intense as ever with over 500,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, with the death toll certainly among the Vietnamese as high, if not higher than ever. But Nixon, you may remember, came into the presidency promising to find peace with honor, so vague was he about how he would bring this about, people started talking about it as a secret plan to end the war. And um, throughout 1969, uh, he, did, he did suggest to uh, the public that he was going to gradually withdraw American soldiers and turn more and more of the fighting over to the South Vietnamese. What the American public did not know is that at precisely that same time, he was embarking on the secret bombing of Cambodia and intensifying and spreading the bombing uh, over South
1: Vietnam and over Laos. And let's look at the state of American politics and the war in American politics in 1969. The Democrats had a strong anti-war faction at that point, which had failed to get their candidate as the nominee in 1968, mostly because Bobby Kennedy was assassinated during the primary and Hubert Humphrey, not an anti-war candidate, but narrowly was defeated by Nixon. So Nixon has narrowly won the election. What was the state of the anti-war movement when Nixon was elected?
0: Well, it was still very lively and growing. And I wanna, I think one of the great things that this documentary does is to demonstrate how vibrant and diverse the movement was. It, it, it included people increasingly from every part of the country, uh, all age groups, every religious denomination, every racial group. And it demonstrates as well, the I think, the political and moral seriousness
1: of the anti-war movement. And there's another side to the anti-war movement the first anti-war demonstration was in the spring of 1965 april 65. it was organized by sds students for a democratic society which became the largest group on campus but in 1969 when our story occurs sds split into two factions trying to compete for who was the most revolutionary And what had been the leading anti-war organizers of students collapsed just at the moment when the war and, as you say, anti-war sentiment was reaching a peak. So it was in this context that a new organization with very different politics from this revolutionary competition within SDS arose, the Vietnam Moratorium Committee, we call them the moratorium, who were these people?
0: They were activists, many of them came from religious backgrounds, Catholic, Quaker, Jewish, and they really sought from the outset to build a broad constituency that would appeal to ordinary Americans, the mainstream. They didn't want to be uh, tainted as revolutionaries or hippies, and to that extent, they were extraordinarily uh, successful. And even were able to galvanize some support within Congress, within local uh, city councils and,
1: and mayors sometimes supported them. So the moratorium group had a very different strategy from what SDS had been doing, not escalating tactics to confront the war makers, but broadening the base to include not just radical students, but all kinds of Americans. Seems like a good idea. What was Nixon's understanding of the anti-war movement and where it had been? Nixon
0: well understood that the anti-war movement had been crucial in bringing the end to his predecessor's presidency, Lyndon Johnson. So while he publicly said that he would paid no attention whatsoever to the demonstrations of the fall, he was in fact quite obsessed with them and had his staff monitor them you know, 24-7 and give him basically reports every half hour as to what they were up to.
1: So let's talk about what they were up to on the first day of the national moratorium. That was the October demonstration, October 15th, 1969. This was the decentralized one, not a march on Washington, but in cities and towns, across America. And I want to emphasize that their strategy here was not just to broaden of the activists in the movement tremendously, but to hold firm to the demand for immediate withdrawal. So their demand was clear and firm, but their effort was to be broad and inclusive. What happened on October 15th, 1969?
0: Well, the first thing I want to emphasize is that October 15th was a Wednesday the middle of the week. It was originally conceived of as a kind of general strike where business as usual would come to a halt while the nation turned its attention to the ongoing war and how to end it as fast as possible. The fact is that on a Wednesday, millions of people in towns and cities all over the country uh, did come together in vigils and marches and protests and the This sort of a ritualistic reading of the names of Americans who had died in Vietnam with music and sort of all kinds of activities.
1: So this is 200 cities, 2 million people, October 15th, 1969. America had never seen anything quite like this before.
0: It was so extraordinary that the press actually took seriously, maybe for the first time during the war, Uh, took seriously uh, the scope of this movement and ran stories about it. Going back to your question about Nixon's reaction, that drove him crazy that uh, it was being treated so respectfully.
1: And what was Nixon's response on November 3rd?
0: He decided that he would speak to the nation. Originally, he was going to announce, likely to announce, major escalations of the war. This is the the, the key backstory and backbone of this documentary, which really begins by our hearing, Nixon pledged during his 1968 campaign that he thought the use of nuclear weapons in Vietnam was just unnecessary and uh, too provocative. But unknown to the American public, uh, Nixon was issuing a series of threats directly to the North Vietnamese, but also via the Soviet Union, which said that if they did not make substantial concessions at the negotiating table, they being North Vietnam, the United States on November 1st would embark on a savage, punishing blow, to use Kissinger's phrase for it, against North Vietnam to include... Uh, Renewed bombing of all of North Vietnam, which LBJ had uh, ended the year before, perhaps a ground invasion of North Vietnam, certainly the mining of harbors, the bombing of the dike system, which would have caused tremendous suffering and perhaps famine in the North, and most disturbingly, possibly the use of nuclear weapons,
1: uh, principally on the rail lines connecting China to North Vietnam. So, there had been a plan to escalate the war significantly that he was going to announce on November 3rd. Instead, he made a different announcement on November 3rd.
0: Well, on November 3rd, instead of announcing the escalation of the war, he asked that patriotic Americans, the great silent majority, he called them, uh, should join with him and, and express their support for the country. So, in effect, he, in that speech, turned the debate away from the merits of the war to a debate about who's a patriotic American and and who's not. Really a debate over the flag. And I have to say, he did that with quite a lot of success. And what the anti-war movement didn't realize, this had actually represented a
1: change in his own policies or his own intentions. So there had been this plan called Operation Duckhook, which involved threatening Russia and Vietnam with nuclear weapons. The problem here, of course, was the Russians and the Vietnamese would think Nixon was bluffing. So the problem for Nixon and Kissinger became how could they convince their antagonists that Nixon was not making a rational bluff? And that's where this concept of the madman, which is in the title of this documentary the movement in the madman comes from that nixon was a madman is that daniel ellsberg's term where does that come from nixon explained this
0: madman theory to his aide bob halderman even before he was elected president and it goes something like this he said bob i call it the madman theory i want the north vietnamese to believe that I would do anything to end this war, that I'm uh, crazy, and that I, uh, 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 they, they know, we can just slip the word to them, that you, you know how, how obsessed he is with communists and we can't restrain him. Plus he's got his hand on the nuclear button. And once they get that message, Ho Chi Minh himself will come you know, uh, begging
1: to uh, Paris to, to make a deal. Then came the second huge demonstration on November 15th. This was a day of protest in Washington, D.C., in San Francisco, unprecedented in American history in its size. On the mall in Washington, D.C., the most memorable moment for many people was when a quarter of a million people sang John Lennon's new song, Give Peace a Chance, led by Pete Seeger, who shouted, Nixon, are you listening? This demonstration included Members of Congress, active duty military, the whole spectrum that had been organized by a, by the previous month's mobilization. one of my favorite parts was the candlelight march outside the White House the night before November 15th. Nixon looked outside the windows and saw the march, and what did he propose? He said, "Isn't
0: there a way we can have some helicopters fly over these demonstrators and blow out their candles."
1: Oh, so November 15th was this unprecedented, huge thing. I remember after November 15th feeling that this didn't work. It didn't change the war. The war went on pretty much as before. And and the documentary says I wasn't the only one who, who felt that way. But we have learned since then, as historians, that big changes were underway uh, in the White House. Tell us about those. Well... Demonstrations of the fall did have an effect that was unknown,
0: that it was a break on escalations that might have taken place then and there.
1: Um, Nixon did write in his memoirs, quote, "I had to face the fact that referring to the moratorium demonstrations of the fall of 1969, that it probably destroyed the credibility of my ultimatum to Hanoi, which they had just made in Paris that same month. That seems like a pretty good source for arguing that these demonstrations did have a big effect on Nixon.
0: We we can't exaggerate the effect of the anti-war movement when we consider the fact that, you know, Nixon berated himself over backing down uh, in the fall and l- later introduced forms of escalation that he had already conceived of, of launching in 1969. So it's in the spring of 70, that he invades Cambodia. Two years later, he uh, renews in a major way the bombing of North Vietnam, which was part of that duck hook plan and the mining of the harbors. But fortunately, he never did uh, turn to nuclear weapons. To convince the American people that the war was really winding down, he was going to have to move forward on troop withdrawals. And whatever escalatory moves he made to try to prolong the war uh, were going to uh, do damage to the Vietnamese and lower the casualties of Americans. And in that sense, uh, people like Daniel Ellsberg would be quick to remind us that, you know, the war really wasn't winding down, not for the Vietnamese, not for the Laotians, and not for the Cambodians. Uh, They were suffering as much or more than ever. Uh, And and the war does continue, but it does become clear to the White House that they have to do a better job of convincing the American public that they they are committed to winding it down for Americans.
1: So your closing thoughts here about whether and how these mass protests of 1969 did change the course of the war?
0: Well, Kissinger and Nixon really were ruthless in their determination to uh, achieve their objectives of a permanent anti-communist regime in South Vietnam, whatever the cost. The the records uh, that are now abundantly clear, Carolyn Eisenberg's new book about Kissinger and Nixon's war policy called Fire and Rain, makes clear that although they were worried about the anti-war movement and the effect it would have on them politically, They weren't worried about the cost of the lives they were taking in Southeast Asia. So it's a huge consolation to say that the anti-war movement made things less bad than they really were because they were terrible and ultimately claimed over 3 million Vietnamese lives and more in Laos and Cambodia. But it actually could have gone on longer and worse than it did had it not been for this massive unprecedented outpouring of uh, opposition
1: the documentary is the movement and the madman it's directed by stephen talbot it's playing on pbs stations march 28th and then we'll be streaming at pbs.org and the pbs app chris Appy is one of the historians whose voices we hear in the film chris thanks for talking with us today thanks john <laughs>